Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. Today we are very honored to have amongst us Dr. Timapa Hegde, who is a renowned neurosurgeon in Bangalore. He is the founder and director of the Narayan Institute of Neurosciences in Bangalore. Dr. Hegde, after completing his MBBS, did his neurosurgery residency at the National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences, which is NIMHANS in Bangalore. Further, he pursued his fellowship in the US, Holland and Japan. He was at NIMHANS until 2003, after which he decided to work with Narayan Hidrale. That's where he is right now. Because neurosciences, whatever it is, is an aspect of science and science studies the objective world and spirituality has no business with the objective world or any object. It deals with you. Now, you means the one who is listening. Again, to answer these principal questions about meaning of life, meaning of death, leading a fuller life and uh, all scriptures come back to mindfulness. Any scripture in the world comes back to the richness of this moment. Welcome, Dr. Hegde. Thank you. Thank you, Nitish. So during these uh, podcasts, one of the first things that we do is try to understand something about the upbringing of the person that we're interviewing. So if you can tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you're from, and how did you get into thinking about doing medicine? My father's a doctor, and uh, at that time, I virtually had no choice. So being a doctor, sometimes I was called as a doctor itself. So I virtually thought I had no other choice but to be a doctor, but I didn't know how I would ever get into a medical school. But uh, I assumed it would happen in due course. And that's how you just decided to pursue that journey. Did you grow up in Bangalore? Yes, uh, it was in Bangalore. I grew up in Bangalore. I was in a Catholic school, St. Joseph's Boys School. And then I continued into St. Joseph's College for my PUC. And uh, it was a matter of few circumstances because I never considered myself to be, you know, always average and less than average. A certain transition happened a little later in the years where uh, something propelled me to work, to survive, and uh, got the necessary grades to get into a medical school. My home was very close to Nimhans and I could see the whole building coming up at that time. And while in medical school, it was a sort of dream that if I will ever be there one day. And um, like many things in life, you know, how things happen, it did happen. One day I had admission into the neurosurgery program. And getting into a good program like this, it you know, it's a matter of time when you complete the program. And thereafter, it's absorbed into the faculty. So when you are in a position, you have no time to think. Years pass. And that's how many years into neurosurgery at NIMHANS. Interesting. I, I was reading a quote from Wayne Dyer. I don't know if you've heard of him. He says, your intention becomes your reality. That's true. That's true. Whatever is your deep uh, intention becomes a reality. And uh, I fully agree with that. So you touched a little bit about the Catholic faith. And one of the other things I try and understand, and I would like to know more about in your upbringing, what role did spirituality play? While in school itself, I came across, uh, I was very fortunate to come across a very highly enthusiastic Catholic priest, Father Ronnie Prabhu. And uh, his life was a message for me. 
his life, uh, when the word enthusiasm itself, he portrayed the word entheo means, en means within, theo means God. And he radiated goodness, he radiated uh, godliness, human being, but godly. And very fortunately for him, uh, circumstances brought me very close to him. One central message that he always had is uh, how blessed we are, how lucky we are. And uh, that was his message to say that, you know, when we are so fortunate, can we make the most of every opportunity, every moment of our life? And that's, was that the only thing that you were exposed to in your childhood or did any Vedantic philosophies? Not at all. While it was school, it was predominantly Catholic and my all my role models were the founders of the Society of Jesus. It was uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola. And again, through Father Rani Prabhu. And his message was that if you have to really serve, you have to be as trained as possible, as skilled as possible. As I said, becoming a doctor was not an option. It was, I thought I had to be one. But then I got into neurosurgery and, and uh, neurosurgery gave me a tremendous opportunity to examine life. Because that's where you see in a government hospital that it was, where you see a lot of poor people, a lot of human suffering, death and the dying. So death and the dying became something very close to my life because uh, you encounter death so often, especially because of road traffic accidents or because of brain tumors, which are fairly serious. And then uh, we begin to contrast life in the background of death. And that sort of led me into various spiritual, into what is this meaning of life? What is the meaning of life in the contrast of death? So now I understand you are a Vedantic scholar and I forgot to mention that in our introduction and you conduct many workshops, many trainings related to Vedanta and I believe that's where your journey of finding self started uh, when you started looking at the kind of problems our society we're living in because I don't know in, in your childhood how your childhood was but in my childhood I wasn't really exposed to too many difficulties in life and it was a comfortable life where we overlooked some of these problems and later on as you mentioned when you start seeing some issues in life these problems start questioning what we are doing. So your journey of self as it has continued, what does it mean to you that what are you looking for? What is your exploration about? The main questions come from answering families of patients who are going through suffering, patients who are going through death and the dying. So somewhere it is to be able to find answers for them and through them to for myself. Uh, that is how somewhere my spiritual journey began. And to many extent, it is the, you know, a lot of parallel with the life of Gautama Buddha. Gautama Buddha saw suffering only. He saw an old person, a sick person in a dead body. And the question occurred, is there any meaning when you, when you encounter this in daily life? Now, he was able to discover it for himself. Fortunately, I had uh, somebody who was able to explain these Buddhist sutras. And uh, these Buddhist sutras were my first exposure to mindfulness. And uh, of course, I had never had a living teacher, but uh, much of my reading was by a chance exposure to Osho. And I find that nobody better than Osho could explain the various Buddhist sutras, trying to understand Zen, trying to understand mindfulness, trying to understand death, dying and the meaning of suffering. 
So somewhere the books of Osho gave me a long, lot of message for a long time in my life. Vedanta came very much later. Much later when I was in Narayan Tradalya, I chanced, uh, Narayan Tradalya opened a unit in Chinmay Mission Hospital. And there the Swamiji requested me to speak on a Gita conference. I had absolutely no idea of the Gita or the Upanishads. And if I was to be speaking about the Bhagavad Gita, I thought I should l- learn something about it. And that kindled me. And then on, I discovered that, you know, among all these books that are available, something which is simple, which is direct, was the Bhagavad Gita. And that's my journey into Vedanta began. Again, to answer these principal questions about meaning of life, meaning of death, leading a fuller life, and uh, all scriptures come back to mindfulness. Any scripture in the world comes back to the richness of this moment. So you've answered my next question already, but I'll ask it in a much deeper way. So I have really enjoyed listening and reading to Osho. I think he was one of the most enlightened beings and he has had he had his issues in whatever way that was. But in terms of his understanding of life, I think he was the most enlightened one, at least in our lifetimes. Now, from his perspective and his explanations of the sutras that you have studied, when he explained mindfulness to you, what did it mean to you the way he explained it? Because his commentary, I've not been exposed to his commentary, but I would like to understand from you, what did it mean to you the way you understood it? Uh, the Buddhist sutras come alive through his discourses. So there is one Buddhist sutra from the Heart Sutra, the Hridayam Sutra. It, this is actually a very popular mantra. It goes like this, Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasam, Gate, Bodhiswaha. I have heard these, the same thing. That I've been to a program where the Dalai Lama spoke on the same mantra also. I sat in Delhi, very close to him, and I heard him, you know, repeat in Sanskrit, Tad, Yatha, Gate, Gate, Paragate. But the way Osho has brought out this whole mantra, Osho has a tremendous amount of admiration for Gautama Buddha. He compares Gautama Buddha as the ultimate, the most enlightened, the most scientific, the most godly and the most godless because he never spoke about God, but yet yet he led more people to God than anybody else. And from Buddha came on Zen. It was a birth. And Zen is, there is no scholarship, there is no books, there is nothing. It is pure mindfulness. It is just this moment and, you know, to live in this moment in in its entirety. And uh, to me, his works, uh, both for understanding the Buddhist sutras and for uh, what Zen is. And what does it mean to me is, you know, more and more, can I live my life more and more fully? Beginning with when you wake up in the morning and... uh, these came subsequently with various uh, Hindu works also. According to an Indian tradition, when you place your foot on the ground, when you wake up, the ground is, is Goddess Lakshmi. And there is a beautiful mantra which says, Samudra Vasani Devi Parvati Stanamandale Vishnu Patni Namastubhyam Padasparsha Kshamasvi. Please excuse me, I am placing my feet on you. Just imagine 
beginning the day with the feeling that I am resting on Goddess Lakshmi. Many Indian traditions and some of the teachers who give you certain exercises after a certain phase is, they say at this moment, wherever you are, are you aware of the ground beneath your feet? Now, that's when you become grounded. That's when you become mindful. The paradox about mindfulness is the mind is the biggest barrier for mindfulness. I'm sitting with you, but my mind can take me to thoughts far away and miss this moment and the proximity that I'm sitting on the chair in front of the microphone in front of you because my mind goes into the next question or whatever I have to answer. So if you would continue in this moment, so you need many situations in your daily life to remind you, come back to this moment, be here, be now. And I think that's what the intention does as well on a daily basis if we, if we can start with our intention. So shifting gears a little bit, moving towards the convergence of neuroscience and spirituality. Over the last about 30, 40 years, there has been a lot of progress, leaps and bounds in the field of neuroscience. And neuroscience is trying to scientifically prove what spirituality has has done hundreds and thousands of years ago. Where do you see that in India? Where do you see that going? Where is it right now as compared to the other parts of the world? And are we getting to a point where we'll see a convergence or where we'll see some parts at least align a little bit? With the neurosciences and spirituality? And spirituality, yes. Neuroscience is one aspect of science and it deals with the brain, maybe to some extent about the mind. And uh, fortunately, I've been able to balance these two different domains. One is to be able to work as a neurosurgeon, which gives me some idea about the brain and the brain functioning to a certain extent. Not really psychology, because psychology is... uh, another domain which is not part of my work but part of my interest that has taken me into the world of psychology and over the years my good fortune or various teachers have taken me into the depths of the world of spirituality. One thing is very very clear that the world of spirituality deals with oneself and it deals with the subject, it deals with you and when I say you I mean it is someone other than this body and mind. When you deal with science, the science deals with the object. And science, with all its advancements, can get better and better into the objective world. But the science has no access to the one who's looking through the instrument of science. Now, the instrument of science could be a microscope or a telescope. Now, through the instrument of science, I can study an object much better than without these tools. And science is only a tool. But the same tool cannot look back into the person who's looking through the instrument of science. And that is where I always find a problem when people try to compare neurosciences and spirituality. Because neurosciences, whatever it is, is an aspect of science and science studies the objective world and spirituality has no business with the objective world or any object, it deals with you. Now, you means the one who is listening. Not your ears, not your brain, but someone who's behind the brain who's listening. And that is why 
Personally, for me, it has been a great advantage. The advantage is, you know, whenever people listen to spirituality from a neuroscientist, they assume that they, they have a lot of advantage from a scientific angle. But I know these are two different parts altogether. So recently, I think in about 2016, there was a paper that was published which talked about the fourth dimension. Brain is three-dimensional, as we all know. They talked about the fourth dimension, which is our consciousness. And there has been subsequent research that is trying to understand the real problem, you know, what are the properties. And I'm not able to understand how can you find properties related to consciousness, which is different for each individual. Is that something that you are talking about because they are separate for each person? How can you relate that to? Is that something that you're going in that direction? Yeah, see, science will talk of consciousness, but the, what science talks of consciousness is a state of mind. You know, I can be more alert when I can say maybe more higher state of consciousness. I can be drowsy or I can be asleep or I can be in coma, which are various levels of the mind functioning or the mind alertness. Or if you want to talk about mindfulness, more mindful or less mindful. But what we're talking about consciousness has nothing to do with the state of mind. By consciousness means the principle of awareness. You know, I can only talk of consciousness from what the Vedanta speaks about. And what Vedanta speaks about, Vedanta has given a nice definition of consciousness. And that the definition of consciousness is that which has no limits. Now, there is one Upanishad which has nicely defined. Of course, it's extremely difficult to understand. The Taitri Upanishad, second chapter begins with Satyam Jnanam Anantam Brahma. That which is there for all time. Satya means not true or untrue. Sat means that which exists, that which never becomes non-existent, which is always there. Jnanam here means consciousness compared to the stable which is inert. Anantam, this is the most beautiful word. The word ananta means no limits in time. There is no limits in space. There is no limits in object. Now you have to understand that's something which is all pervading in space and that which has no beginning or no end because it is beyond time. Now, what we really need to understand is we can have some idea of space. We see that space is both inside me and outside me and it is everywhere. Space gives an idea of infinity. Now, if that infinite space has the ability to be conscious, so that is what we talk of conscious. Consciousness is not the state of mind, but a consciousness is something that enlivens me. The consciousness is that which is all-pervading and something that is never destroyed even when the body is destroyed. Is that the similar concept in Buddhism of shunyata? That's right. So different faiths are different things. That's right. From an understanding standpoint, it sounds very good. It's something that we aspire in all our life that this is where we would like to be. But then when we come to the ground, we have real issues that we deal with day-to-day -day basis and you deal with them because you see patients, you see their real problems that they deal with. How can we use these spiritual things, let's say mindfulness, for example, 
to help us live our life in better ways what is something that a normal human being can do who doesn't have the understanding because of one reason or the other over the years i have learned one thing that all these spiritual inputs are for me and for the therapist directly and very indirectly for the patient supposing it if i am empowered only then i am able to make a difference to another person when a person is in physical pain when a person is in psychological distress the person is begging for relief of pain relief from the disease relief from the psychological and we need to address that the person is not in any receptive state for any spiritual inputs at that time very rarely they may be but you know sometimes you get windows or you get foothold for them to enter into the world of spirituality but for most people it's suffering compounded suffering and suffering sometimes by chance they come across a teacher or somebody or who you know who's able to help them that suffering can be found meaning only through the world of spirituality so someone who's not a patient for example and if they would like to get started if they have never been on this path of mindfulness or spirituality per se and they don't have a teacher they don't know where to go your journey started with your teachers what is that you would recommend for them to do and how can they start this journey by themselves the problem is in the world of spirituality is the need for a teacher because you know if i have to learn to drive a car i need a person who will teach me how to drive if i need to learn a cycle i need somebody to help me to teach me the even to swim my need now if for all these basic things if you need a teacher now into the world of spirituality where you're trying to understand yourself who is someone other than this body and mind it requires definitely requires a person to guide you and without guidance it becomes difficult so you may read with books but the problem is sometimes you misunderstand and when a person is misunderstood it's more difficult you get a false sense of knowledge and that is the problem i think I have heard you speak about this and I think it brings to mind one of the things that I heard which is astoma sadgameya tamsoma jyotirgameya mrityurma and you talk about that the teacher takes you from dark to light and from unreal to real but your understanding has evolved based on what your experiences has been over the years and I think it directly goes into that question if you can explain a little bit about why is that teacher needed to take you from that place that abyss of where you don't know what to do to that place of joy and freedom see we operate every day and whenever we operate one of the things we always say is the big decision for a surgeon is to choose the patient for the surgery so we always say a person must earn his surgery if the person is ambivalent about surgery we'll say wait for some time until you feel that you are you're not able to manage yourself then you come for surgery so too a person should earn his way into spirituality how do you earn your way into spirituality 
what you do is through reasoning through money power through whatever power you try to solve all the issues in your life and then a stage comes when a person finds that you know i have got all the success in the world i've got everything in the world but i don't have a sense of fulfillment there is still something and when you have exhausted all your resources that's when you are in the in your ripe state otherwise see that is why spirituality is actually only for the rich when you don't have money when you don't have means there is always a hope that one day when i have enough money one day i have enough means all my problems in my life will be solved but those who have worked their way up into enough of money and enough of means and they find that you know they have not gone anywhere they still gone that is when they become very receptive and that is when uh, these are like the preparatory that you have earned your surgery you have earned your ability to come into the world and then you have to say now i do not know i need you to guide me and that is when you need to find and today a lot of people complain that we don't have good teachers we don't have good role models good gurus in a way it is true for every good teacher for every genuine teacher there are about 20 times pseudo teachers who are there to you know earn a livelihood through you but i can say for certainty there are a lot more good teachers than people looking for good teachers <laughs> there are many unemployed realized teachers but you know you don't have the right qualified person who's ready to give up everything for that learning so yes it is for the rich i tend to agree but yes we have had spiritual gurus people from different faiths who have not been from rich backgrounds who are or well to do backgrounds i would say but that always makes me think that is there something that we can do in our education system you grew up in a catholic or you went to a catholic school and in most schools nowadays we focus on the iq the education which we so call is needed to get a job to get into that assembly line is there something that we can do in our education system in india and maybe across the world as well where we can inculcate some of these practices which may be secular which may not be secular which may make a difference in each and every person's life where we have a better community that we are living in where we're not running just after money or where we're not just looking to survive but we are living our life for living it the problem i see is in any school you have people of different religions and whenever you introduce even a practice like yoga it could be misused by somebody as belonging to a particular religion and there is opposition from others so it's extremely difficult to bring any of these so called spiritual practices because many often religious fanatism overrides and then the whole practice becomes vitiated so i find more and more schools have less of a role for bringing in spiritual education and that's where parents have to play a big role parents have to play a big role more as role models in their own spiritual practices and also how spiritual practices has transformed them to be as better persons because that works better than you know trying to tell children or anybody to do this or do that thank you i feel that parents should spend time with their children and that's what i've been learning 
we have a very young daughter at home and we're learning that the more time we spend with her and she learns more by looking at us rather than us telling her what to do that's true because they spend a lot of time in school as well a few hours i feel that uh, if there is something that can be done in school but you're absolutely right it's not something that is easy but hopefully we'll all figure out a way for us to do that so we're getting towards the end of our time here one of my final questions is regarding the way we listen and i think the previous question made me think about that question is that the way we listen in mindfulness is one we are mostly passive listeners and slowly mindfulness helps us being more active listeners what are these stages and i think you've talked about it before as well the stages of listening how you become mindful from being mindless whenever we listen we can be listening to two things i can be listening to what you are speaking or i can be listening to what is happening within my mind and uh, therefore most of my listening is filtered by my own listening mindful practices therefore is utmost in passivity utmost in passivity which means blank mind you know i come from complete openness my mind is completely blank at this moment i'm receptive to whatever you have to say and i take the word you know and i receive it and i accept it no evaluation no judging and then maybe over a period of time trying to digest that word as it is the without even filtering exactly what we have said so listening is a great art to be able to listen without using your own mind as a filter thank you and towards the end of the interview we do these few rapid fire questions if you're okay with it we'll sure. just go ahead with it our first question is one place that you would like to visit or you have been uppermost on my mind is mount kailash i have been there a few years ago and that was perhaps one of the most enchanting experience and i'm looking forward for experience of kailash again one childhood memory that brings joy to your life or joy when you think about it not so much of a childhood memory but a little older when i thought i had a serious illness and my life was and then i had a consultation by a doctor somewhere who told me it's nothing and uh, gave me a new at least in my thought a new sense of a new lease of life if you were not a teacher if you were not a surgeon what would your alternate profession be i would like to be a student do you have a favorite musician or favorite music you like to listen to i enjoy the songs of deva primal deva primal is a german singer who sings a lot of uh, indian and buddhist mantras in a very extremely melodious tune i enjoy listening and is there anyone in the past that comes to your mind that you would like to meet the person whom i spoke father honey i mean he would be an impression in my life he's no more he died a few years ago and uh, i was fortunate to be with him for many years and i've seen him even at the moment of his death and uh, if i ever get a chance to meet him again that would be him right i think uh, that's a great way for us to come to the conclusion of this interview thank you so much dr hegde for being part of our podcast uh, spending this evening and giving us time 
our listeners will surely find a lot of things in here for them thank you so much thank you thank you very much Nish. thank you everyone for listening in and tuning in for another episode of the mindful initiative podcast if you like our episode please share it with your friends and family you can listen to us on itunes google podcast or spotify or wherever you get your podcast thank you so much